World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. From the very start of Canada's national history, Indigenous children were shuffled off to residential schools designed to strip them of their identities. As discoveries of mass graves reveal the school's inhumane conditions, Canada is set for a reckoning. And 50 years ago today came the release of the second and final album by Karen Dalton, an extraordinarily gifted folk singer. She was reluctant to perform or even to record her music, and as a result, her talents are only now reaching wider audiences. First up, though. I do hereby swear by the Almighty God that as the President of the Republic of South Sudan that as the President of the Republic of South Sudan I shall be faithful. I shall be faithful. Ten years ago today, a new sovereign country was born as South Sudan's President Salva Kiir was sworn in before a huge flag-waving crowd in the country's capital, Juba. So help me God. So help me God. Then the celebrations began. Sudan had been racked by decades of successive civil wars. Millions were killed as a rebel group fought for the independence of the mostly Christian South against a government based in the largely Muslim North. Millions more were displaced. This was a ceaselessly brutal conflict. Amputations by machete were policy. Death by stoning was common. Out of those darkest times, a peace agreement was struck in 2005. It led to an autonomous government for the South, a grouping of 10 states that's home to more than 60 major ethnic groups. After an overwhelming referendum vote in favor of statehood, the Republic of South Sudan came into being on July 9th, 2011. Maps were redrawn. Western advisors flew in, eager to help shape a new state. Hope was, for a time, in abundance. South Sudan's independence 10 years ago was a moment of absolute optimism. Jonathan Rosenthal is The Economist's Africa editor. Here you had Africa's newest country, a country that was breaking away from its very oppressive northern Sudan. And people really saw this as a moment of of freedom and opportunity and Yet in the past 10 years, it's really fallen apart. There's been civil war after civil war. People are living in absolute misery. Many are no noticeably better off than they were when South Sudan was still part of Sudan. And it's really been an absolute disappointment. So why did the country descend into civil war? I guess there is a a sort of narrow reason and a slightly larger reason. And the, the narrow reason was that in 2013, 
ethnic tensions broke out between the president, Salva Kiir, and his, his deputy, Reg Mashar, who each represent the two largest ethnic groups. And Mr. Kiir sacked his cabinet. He got rid of uh, Mr. Mashar, accusing him of, of instigating a coup, although there seems to have been very little evidence of that. What you really had was a breakdown into ethnic conflict. I guess the slightly larger reason is just that both sides wanted to get their hands on oil money. South Sudan is theoretically a very rich country. And for the international community, that that scrap for oil must surely have been predictable. I, I guess part of the optimism that surrounded the birth of South Sudan was that in its struggle for independence was a story that all kinds of outsiders could kind of latch their own narrative onto. So you you had left-wing human rights activists in America who were looking at this and seeing an oppressed people's yearning for, for liberation. You had Christian fundamentalists who looked at, at what was largely a Christian and animist South being oppressed by a largely Muslim North. So they got involved and sort of projected their aspirations onto it. And yet there was just tremendous naivety. People who were in the country before independence talk about how American neoconservatives and, and administration officials and, and, and successive governments would be wandering around, handing out books on America's founding fathers or books by Milton Friedman on capitalism. And all of them underestimated, firstly, just how difficult it is to build a new state or a new country when there are no institutions. And I think most of them also underestimated the ethnic militias in the South, who they'd backed in their struggle against Sudan. But the South Sudanese People's Liberation Movement, uh, which which led the struggle, was really not cuddly human rights activists. These were sort of hardened guerrilla fighters who'd grown up fighting by the gun and uh, and weren't really ready to put it down and, and hand over to the institutions of governance. And so what is the situation on the ground in South Sudan now? So things took a real dive in 2013 uh, with this war. That war claimed perhaps 400,000 lives, many of them, if not most of them, as civilians. So a really horrendous civil war that, shall we say, slowed down in 2018 with the tenuous ceasefire. But the violence hasn't stopped entirely. There are still ethnic militias killing people. Aid workers are still struggling to get in and help people. In the past month, four aid workers have been killed. And you've got a population that is just desperately poor despite the oil that's being pumped out of the ground. Depending on how you count, between a quarter and a half of people in the country are depending on on some sort of food aid. The ceasefire that there is is sort of absolutely fragile. It's broken down in the past. Previous efforts uh, lasted just a few months. And there's a real worry that fighting could start again. Yet it sounds as if life for them isn't so different from from during the civil war. Not considerably better. Levels of violence have gone down, but people are still in refugee camps. People are still struggling. Violence still exists. Women's rights barely exist. And there is no state, so to speak. The only institution that holds any real sway is the army. And it's certainly not seen by most people as an army that is there to protect them. One of the most stark measures of just how awful things are at the moment is that a South Sudanese girl is more likely to die in childbirth than she is to complete secondary school. So what is there to be done 10 years into the existence of this country to bring things back to to an even keel? There is concerted pressure from the region and from Western diplomats to look at a much looser federation where ethnic groups have far greater say over their own affairs and, and greater control of resources. Unfortunately, there are two 
main obstacles to this, and they are the president and the vice president. Both of them have gone to war in the past because they each want absolute power. Neither of them seems at all inclined to step down. And you really do need them out of the way to try to get a new settlement that can bring the rest of the country together. If they were to go, there are some reasons to be hopeful. I think the first is that South Sudan's partners, you know, the region, donors, America, have just learned an immense amount about the complexities of this country and I think would approach it with a much clearer vision. The second reason to be hopeful is that there are real initiatives at a grassroots level that are still quite small, but it's efforts to form peace committees and build peace village by village. It's efforts to set up women's groups and fight for women's rights. And I suppose if one could scale those up and really look at trying to build peace and democracy from the bottom up instead of just looking at the country from the top down as has happened in the past, then there are reasons to hope that things could improve. Thanks very much for joining us, Jonathan. Thank you, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. July 1st was Canada Day, the 154th anniversary of the country's confederation. I wore an orange shirt. Like many others, Cindy Blackstock wore an orange shirt in solidarity with indigenous communities in Canada. It's a day of action for me. I was really thinking, what could I do and how could I speak out more clearly, more loudly to the government? How can I help Canadians do the same thing? Ms. Blackstock is a social work professor at McGill University and an advocate for child welfare in Canada. She's also a member of the Gitsan First Nation, To her, the national holiday was a chance to call for a change in Canada's relationship with its Indigenous communities. The encouraging thing is I'm seeing Canadians are way out in front of the Canadian government at the moment. The Canadian mood is they want to see these injustices stop. Since the start of June, the remains of more than a thousand people have been discovered in unmarked graves. All were on the sites of former residential schools for Indigenous children. In a speech on Canada Day, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promised a national reckoning. And we, as Canadians, must be honest with ourselves about our history. Because in order to chart a new and better path forward, we have to recognize the terrible mistakes of our past. That past has, until recently, not figured strongly in Canada's national story. But as more graves are discovered, the full scale of those harms is becoming troublingly clear. Communities found these grave sites using ground-penetrating radar at three different sites. Elise Burr writes about foreign affairs for The Economist. It shocked a lot of Canadians, but the discoveries have confirmed what Indigenous groups have always known, that more children died at these schools than was previously thought. And tell me more about these residential schools. What were they for? The residential school system began around the founding of Canada in the mid-1800s. 
They were funded by the government and mostly run by the Catholic Church. Canada's first prime minister, Johnny MacDonald, said himself that the intent was to remove the child from the influence of his or her so-called savage parents so that the children could, quote, acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. The Canadian government forced around 150,000 children into these schools. The last of these schools didn't close until the 1990s. And what was life like for the kids at these schools? Children were beaten for speaking their native language. Many were physically and sexually abused. Disease spread rampantly because of cramped dormitories and poor living conditions. And children died in accidents, by suicide, and in attempts to escape. In many cases, their families never knew what happened to them. And now the discovery of these graves bears a a lot of this out. I mean, what, what do we know about those graves? Well, this is really just the tip of the iceberg. These discoveries started in British Columbia, where one indigenous group found the remains of 215 children. This is traumatic, and each and every one of us have been impacted by residential schools. And that spurred other communities to search their own residential schools. One First Nation in Saskatchewan found at least 750 people. Over the past years, the oral stories of our elders, of our survivors, and friends of our survivors have told us stories that knew these burials were here. And just the day before Canada Day, another group in British Columbia found another 182. The elders in our community, we were talking about, okay, now we know where these are. We don't want, we want to make sure that we remember where these are. How are we going to mark them? It's not clear yet who exactly these people are or how they died. And what has the Canadian government said about these graves, about these residential schools more generally? The Canadian government has previously tried to atone for these schools. In 2008, it formally apologized for the residential schools. Today we recognize that this policy of assimilation was wrong, has caused great harm, and has no place in our country. It then launched a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and deemed the schools a form of cultural genocide. The commission's report discussed the likelihood of these grave sites, and the government has funded programs to locate these graves. And in the wake of the discovery of the graves in Canada, the U.S. Secretary of Interior, Deb Holland, announced that the U.S. will start its own investigation of its own boarding schools. The federal policies that attempted to wipe out Native identity, language, and culture continue to manifest in the pain our communities face. America will likely, in this upcoming year, have many discoveries of its own. And you mentioned that many of the schools were run by the Catholic Church. What's their role in all this? After some initial reluctance by the church in Canada, one Catholic order has said that it's going to release documents that it has kept about these schools, and that might provide some answers about these graves. Pope Francis has also said that he will meet with indigenous leaders later this year to acknowledge the church's role. In announcing the visit, the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops also referred to the ongoing effects of intergenerational trauma and That's a really important point because a lot of the people who were put into these residential schools are parents and grandparents of Indigenous kids today. And the damage that these schools did to families and communities is going to take a really long time and a lot of hard work to repair. 
these schools closed in the 1990s, but that's not to say that it's all in the past. Indigenous kids are overrepresented in foster care and adoptive homes, and Indigenous leaders like Cindy Blackstock say that that perpetuates the breakup of families and communities that was started by the residential schools. You know, we use words like overrepresentation as adults, I think sometimes because it's easier to say. But the way that children think of this is how many sleeps till I see my mom. And that number is growing because the Canadian government has not provided the equitable resources these communities so desperately need to be able to stem the tide of these kids leaving their communities and their families. First Nations children are 14 times more likely to be placed in foster care than other children. And the reasons for that are poverty, poor housing, and caregiver substance misuse flowing from multi-generational trauma of residential schools. So the same preventable loss of your children is happening again to this generation of First Nations parents that is just magnifying the trauma. Elise, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dalton is famously described as the best singer you never heard of. The quintessential Karen Dalton song, Something on Your Mind, people hear it and they just have to stop what they're doing. Yesterday, anyway, you made it was It's the 50th anniversary of Karen Dalton's second and last album, In My Own Time a title that was particularly apt because she worked to nobody's schedule and nobody's tempo but her own. David Bennon writes about culture for The Economist. Karen Dalton was rare among New York folk singers in that she actually came from the kind of background that most of them are only singing about. Born in Texas and grew up in Enid, Oklahoma, was the daughter of an electrician and nurse, folks who knew rough times in the 30s when she was born in 1937. She was the real thing, and you can really hear that in her voice. You can really hear the history of lived pain in there. Blues on my ceiling. If you listen to a song such as Blues on the Ceiling, Run down the walls, cross the floor, you can see why she was so often compared to Billie Holiday which was a comparison she herself detested, because superficially there is a resemblance in the voice. But the thing that she had most in common with Billie Holiday was really the ability to convey a depth of sorrow. This wasn't a matter of her imagination. By the time she came to New York in 1960 or so, she had already married and divorced twice and had two children that she'd had to leave behind. This had all happened in her teens. And she'd also lost, as well as two husbands and two children, she'd managed to lose two front teeth in her lower jaw as a result of getting in the middle of a fight between two boyfriends. She was quickly embraced by the scene. I think her talent was very quickly recognised. She was the real deal. She does a cover of When a Man 
loves a woman, a soul hit for Percy Sledge. And you would have thought that it would be really impossible for anybody to come close to Percy Sledge's version, definitive as it is. And yet somehow she manages to turn the song inside out and sing it from a female point of view. she can do no wrong. She wasn't, by all accounts, shy in her personality. Where she was reticent was in performance. It tormented her to perform in public, which, of course, is something of a difficulty for somebody who wants to become a singing star, which she did. Worse still, in a way, she hated recording. And on her first album, they made no progress at all on that recording until her friend and champion Fred Neal turned up to reassure her and settle her down. And even then, it was only when he and the producer convinced her that the tape was not rolling, they tricked her, that she actually recorded the whole thing in one night and mostly in one take. Cara Dalton is the subject of a lot of myth-making, which is inevitable, I suppose, when you consider, in the absence of facts, myths tend to rush in, especially when we're talking about uh, what we like to think of as great lost artists. The idea that she died of AIDS-related illnesses, which is true, on the streets of New York, which is absolutely not true. She was being looked after by friends and she had a home. But it seems much romantic to think of her as a much more tragic figure than she is. But her life certainly didn't lack for tragedy in itself. Karen Dalton's record started to be reissued in the mid-late 1990s. But the really big thing that happened was when Bob Dylan wrote his memoir called Chronicles Volume 1, which was published in 2004. And Chronicles is a classic example of an unreliable memoir, but one of the most reliable things in it is its account of Karen Dalton, who he briefly describes more or less in passing as his favourite folk singer from the early 60s. This really lit the fuse. That was when people started listening to Karen Dalton again in serious numbers. My love, my love, I will watch you. In 2015, Light in the Attic Records put out a tribute album to Karen Dalton called Remembering Mountains, which was her lyrics and poems set to music by the contributing artists. Julia Halter did a song called My Love, My Love on that, which is really something of a standout. It does make you wonder what it would have been like had Dalton recorded her own music. I'll listen to you cry. In the end, an artist can become famous for being obscure. And I think that's something that's happened with Karen Dalton. Really, the thing to remember her by is not her myth, not her obscurity. What it really comes down to is the power of her voice and her music. Yesterday, anyway, Nick Cave has told a story of how he first heard Karen Dalton in his car when Something on Your Mind came on. He had to pull over in tears, not because the song was so sad, but because it was so perfect. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Kim Gittleson and Chris Impey. Our sound engineer is Daniel Lloyd Evans with help from Saul Rivers. Our senior producers are Hannah Mourinho, Duncan Barber, and Sam Colbert. Our producers are Stevie Hertz and William Warren. And our assistant producers are Jason Hoskin and Abisoya Oshindairo, helped along this week by Emily Elias and Rory Galloway. We'll all see you back here on Monday.
World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.